0: Everyone seems to have something to say about homosexuality. Mozilla and Brandon Icke certainly do. Mozilla appointed Brandon Icke CEO and after two weeks he resigned. Why? He supported a law prohibiting same-sex marriage and a media firestorm ensued. Phil Robertson and A&E Network have something to say about homosexuality. A&E suspended Phil Robertson for his critical view of homosexuality but then allowed him back. World Vision has something to say. It decided to begin employing married homosexuals, but within 48 hours reversed the decision. NBA player Jason Collins, ESPN analyst Chris Broussard, and PGA pro Pro Bubba Watson all have something to say. Collins became the first openly gay athlete in an American team sport. He said he was happy to start the conversation Brassard responded, quote, I am a Christian, I don't agree with homosexuality, I think it's a sin, I believe that walk, uh, that's walking in open rebellion to God and to Jesus Christ. Bubba Watson added, the Bible says you can't be gay, that's a sin. Our president has something to say, 2008 he told, Pastor Rick Warren and many evangelical Christians that marriage is a union between a man and woman. He said, quote, for me, as a Christian, it's also a sacred union. God's in the mix. I am not somebody who promotes same-sex marriage, but I do believe in civil unions. Four four years later, our president said, quote, for me personally, it is important for me to go ahead and affirm that I think same-sex couples should be able to get married, Islam has something to say. According to the penal code of Yemen, a homosexual could be stoned to death. Homosexual kissing could result in flogging in Iran. Muslim militias have killed homosexuals in Iraq in the name of Allah. Joel Osteen, one of the most unorthodox and compromising pastors in the world, and John MacArthur, one of the most orthodox and uncompromising pastors in the world, both have something to say. Osteen told Oprah that homosexuality is sinful according to the Bible. MacArthur told Larry King that homosexuality is a sin according to the Bible. Matthew Vines, Rob Bell, Tony Campolo, Brian McLaren, and Jennifer Knapp, all prominent self-identified Christians, all support homosexuality and all have something to say. The Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Baptists, Mennonites, United Church of Christ, all denominations have something to say. Now we can't forget Westboro Baptist Church. They definitely have something to say. Everyone has something to say. Our culture and the church are both overrun with opinions. In the middle of the cultural and religious noise is anyone listening for what Jesus has to say. He has something to say and prefers we listen to him. Some say Jesus never mentioned homosexuality. Is that true? Was Jesus undecided or vague or fully supportive on the issue? How do we even know what Jesus thinks? Over the next five weeks, I'm going to build a case for you a case for what Jesus actually says about homosexuality, because I think his perspective trumps everyone else's. At first, my approach will probably seem unconventional to you. An odd way to get started on homosexuality. On the surface, at least at the beginning, much of what I say may seem irrelevant to the discussion. And uh, you might be sitting there listening, wondering, where is, he, where is he going with this? I don't see how this really has anything to do with the topic. Hopefully that's not the case, but I could understand if it would be. But I want you to keep thinking. Think. Think. Think and ask this question. It has a little rhyme to it. What might this have to do with Jesus' view? What might this have to do with Jesus' view? Remember, I'm building a case. After the case is made and you look back on these previous weeks, I think the pieces will fit. And hopefully it will be helpful to you. And so, think and stay with me till the end. Now, I will say at this point that if you are not going to be here for the rest of the month, or you're going away, or you don't go to this church, you can access our sermons on uh, iTunes and on the website. Just search in iTunes, Jerusalem Church Sermons, and you'll be able to track the rest of them if you, if you can't be with us the rest of the month. So that should be helpful to complete this. This is an important series because several important things are at stake the character and nature and glory of God. How we hear God and understand truth. How we define sin. What Jesus died for and sets us free from. What needs to be repented of. Healthy marriage and family and culture. Even the joy and pleasure or guilt and shame experienced in sexual union. The real issue here is truth. What glorifies God And what promotes our greatest good? There is more at stake here than people's rights and laws and people's feelings. The fundamental issue behind the homosexual debate is God and how we hear him. So where do we start? We start with God. R.C. Sproul said, God knows the truth. He is the truth. He's the fountainhead of all truth. All truth comes from him. And that's why we have to start there with his perfect being and understand who God is so that we have some reference point to determine what's true and what isn't true. End of quote. So our starting point is the perfect being of God and what God is like so he can serve as the reference point in determining whether homosexuality is beautiful and good or unnatural and an abomination. And we understand God in light of what he has revealed about himself in the Bible, his inspired word. So that's where we go to hear God and that's where we find absolute truth. Who is God? Who is God? Now here are a few catechism questions that have helped our kids understand God, and so hopefully they're they're helpful to you. Question, is there more than one God? Answer, there is only one God. Question, how many persons are in the one God? Answer, three persons. Question, who are they? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Question, what is God? Answer, God is a spirit and does not have a body. Simple, but really profound. Now let's bump it up a few notches, all right, for the cerebral types, all right, with the Westminster Confession of Faith. It reads like this, there is but one only living and true God. It says, in the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. One God, three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all of which are one substance, power, and authority. We call this the Trinity Each of the persons of the Trinity is homoousios, meaning of the same substance or essence. Some call it consubstantiality. Mark Driscoll and Jerry Brashears explain consubstantiality like this. Quote, one identical divine substance is shared completely by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Any essential characteristic that belongs to one of the three is shared by the others. Each of the three divine persons is eternal, each almighty, none greater or less than another, each God, and yet together being but one God. That's some statement. So the Father, Son, and Spirit are all fully God. The Father is not more or less God than the Son and the Spirit. The Son is not more or less God than the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit is not more or less God than the Father and the Son. Each person of the Trinity is fully God. All homoousios and all equally glorious and praiseworthy. Does God teach us this in His Word? Let's see. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Deuteronomy 4.35, the Lord is God. There is no other besides Him. Deuteronomy 6.4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus Himself says in John 5.44 that God is the only God God. God unmistakably says, there is only one God. Yet, the Father is God. 1 Corinthians 8.6 Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. The Son is God. Hebrews 1.8 But of the Son, the Father says, Your throne, O God. Is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Jesus claimed to be God. John 8, 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. The Spirit is God. Throughout the Bible, the Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of God. In Acts 5, 3 through 4, Peter calls the Holy Spirit God. God is one. But the Bible also teaches that God is three. This means several important things. The Father, Son, and Spirit are each absolute and authoritative on every issue or topic. The Father, Son, and Spirit were all present, or they they perfectly agree rather on everything. There is divine agreement within the Trinity on everything. The Father, Son, and Spirit were all present and active in the Old and New Testaments. And the last point is a helpful little rhyme. Genesis 1.1 is Father, Spirit, Son. Genesis 1.1 is Father, Spirit, Son. Now, we must be careful never to separate the person and purpose of Jesus, God's Son, from the person and purpose of God the Father. The Father, Son, and Spirit are eternally consistent in their view of homosexuality. Homosexuality is settled. It's resolved within the Trinity. Now, may I suggest that the most logical and significant and helpful voice on homosexuality is the three-in-one who designed and defined marriage and sex. Not to be crass or irreverent, but God is the sexpert, as some would say. And we need an open mind to receive His view. And what I mean by an open mind is a sovereignly, Open mind. In Luke 24, 45, it says, Jesus opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. What did He cause them by His sovereign grace to understand? The Scriptures. He was referring to the Old Testament, but we can apply it to all Scripture now. Jesus caused their minds to open up, to see, to really get truth, God's view always transcends ours. So for us to understand sexuality correctly, Jesus must sovereignly open our minds to his view as found in Scripture. Or, this is what happens, we'll simply assimilate whatever view is convenient for us. We'll assimilate assimilate whatever view is popular of the day. Let's ascend even higher into God's infinite being. What is God like? What is God like? Do you perceive God as He actually is? That's an important question. Perceiving God rightly is the key to unlocking God-honoring sexuality. If your view of God is distorted, your view of sexuality will be distorted. And I have great news. It's terrific news. The best. The best news, God has told us what he's like in his son and in his word, the Bible. God works through every word of the Bible to communicate to you and to me what he's like. The Westminster Confession of Faith brings a bunch of scriptures together and summarizes God in this way. All of it has scriptural support. We can't go through the proof text one by one because it's just too massive of a statement. But I want you to at least hear a, a, a good, clear, concise, kind of concise statement on God. There is but one only living and true God. "...who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts or passions... Immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will, for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal, most just and terrible in His judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Wow! That is a statement. God is infinite in being and perfection. God's attributes cannot be separated from His being. He is the eternal perfection of all of His attributes. All God does is consistent with all God is. Let's highlight seven of God's attributes for now. Love. Love. 1 John 4, 8 and verse 16 tell us that God is love. God is love before time began. God is love all throughout the Old Testament. God is love Always. True love, then, is known and experienced only in the context of God, who is love. To detach love from God is to trivialize and depreciate love into empty emotion or eroticism. God is the heartbeat of true love. To know how to give and receive love rightly, we must first encounter God, whose perfect love overflows from his Trinitarian love. A love displaying divine oneness and divine distinction. God is the origin of all faithful companionship and sexuality. Holiness... The Bible emphasizes God's holiness to the highest superlative degree. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God's holiness is His sacred purity, His spotlessness. He is altogether uncontaminated. He is morally perfect. Jesus is referred to in the Scripture as the Holy One of God. Sexual union is only beautiful and pure if it accurately reflects the sacredness and holiness of God. God must declare it holy. Truth. God is absolute truth. The sum of His word is truth. Proverbs 3 verse 5. Every word of God proves true. Psalm 33 4. For the word of the Lord is upright. And all His work is done in faithfulness. Or you could say Fidelity. Jesus said, I am the truth. Sexual intimacy must be understood in light of God's absolute truth, his son and his word. His son and his word. Righteousness. God is perfectly just and perfectly right. Deuteronomy 32:4. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. Psalm 116.5, gracious is the Lord and righteous. In 1 John 2.1, Jesus is called Jesus Christ the righteous. Right and wrong, find their meaning and definition in God's righteousness. God submits to no external standard. God is the standard. God is not bound by fairness as we see it or define it, but as His character defines it wrath god's wrath is often completely overlooked and devalued in the church of america as if it were unimportant as if it didn't even matter as being central to his character Or nature, wrath is essential to the goodness of God. Ezra 8.22 says, The power of His wrath is against all who forsake Him. Jeremiah 10.10, At His wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure His indignation. Romans 12.19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. This is hopeful now that, that Paul is telling the Christians at Rome, he's encouraging them now, He's giving them hope of why they should not avenge themselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Who will make it right in the end? The Lord will, because of his, the goodness of His wrath. Jesus often talked about God's wrath, judgment, hell, and perishing. Now, many would love to distance Jesus from the wrath of God as if Jesus was somehow divinely disconnected from God's holy anger. Many don't know what to do with God's wrath when they read the Scriptures. Some even reject the Father and just focus primarily on the Son, as if the Father is no consequence. They just overlook the Father. A vowed atheist, Richard Dawkins, said this, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, that one's tough to say, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. You know what? Many, profession, many professing Christians identify with Dawkins at this point. That's how they understand God of the Old Testament. God's wrath doesn't seem good or fair or palatable for them. And so they are happy to disconnect Jesus from God's wrath to put Him in another category. But that reveals significant errors in their theology, their Christology, or their view of Christ and their view of God's holiness and wrath. Listen closely. The Son of God was active with God throughout the Old and New Testament and beyond. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. All persons of the Trinity are eternally consistent with each other. The intensity of God's wrath must always be understood according to the Trinity's great enthusiasm for holiness. Saying Jesus is, and so many do this, saying Jesus is all love and tolerance and grace and mercy and warm and fuzzy, is not only ignoring his active role in the Old Testament, but also selectively hearing his teachings in the New Testament while also missing entirely the horrifyingly glorious identity of Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation. Read Revelation and you will see a terrifying warrior Jesus with tattoos and fire in his eyes with sharp and cutting words coming to kill and strike down nations as sovereign and conquering king. Little baby Jesus grew up and he's not intimidated, he's intimidating Revelation 19:15 says Jesus will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Jesus will do that. The real Jesus is so much different, my friends, than the more palatable westernized Jesus that so many in America worship. That's a false Jesus. Now, wrath is not the greatest attribute of God. It's only equal to all the rest. God's righteous indignation is as essential to his being as his love. Mercy. Mercy. God treats us so much better than we deserve. Every day is abundant mercy. God said in Exodus 34:6, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God could kill us now, but he doesn't. He extends mercy. Mercy. God's justice is swift, yet His steadfast love never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. Every single human being without discrimination is alive today because the Trinity is showing divine mercy. Last attribute for now. What a wonderful one. Beauty. Beauty. God is splendidly. God is radiantly, Beautiful, And he distinguishes all that is beautiful. The universe is just a, just a dim reflection of the beauty of God. Psalm 27, 4, hopefully the cry of your heart. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. Do you want to see the beauty of God forever? That, that is the cry of my heart. Just show me something perfect. Just show me something sure. Just show me something that I can bank on because this world is just so confusing with all that there is. I just want to look on the beauty of God. We haven't even scratched the surface of what God is like. But it would be helpful to review two things to make sure that we absolutely have it, to make sure that we get it. Number one, what God is, Jesus is. And number two, what God wills, Jesus wills. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He said that the Father is in him and he is in the Father. What God is, Jesus is. And what God wills, Jesus wills. Jesus said in John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Jesus said, I always do the things that are pleasing to my Father. Is homosexuality love? Is it holy? Is it true? Righteous? Joyful? Merciful and beautiful in the sight of God. And may I ask, as you're wrestling with those huge questions about the nature of God and all that He designed, let me ask you this question How will you determine the answer to this question or these questions? There's one more important attribute of God that unifies the others God never changes. God never changes. God is immutable. Of course God acts. He's not immobile, but he is immutable. He responds, but never changes. Theologian Robert Raymond wrote, quote, he cannot change for the better since he is already perfect, and he cannot change for the worse since that would result in his becoming imperfect, end of quote. So let's quickly look at nine scriptures, real quick, uh, where we see God's immutability. In Numbers twenty-three, nineteen, God said through Balaam to Balak, the king of Moab, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? What God wills, God does, and he doesn't change his mind. In 1 Samuel 15, God rejected Saul as king and stripped the kingdom from him. He was a bad king. In verse 29, Samuel says directly to Saul, the king, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret. God doesn't change his mind on things he has already decided. Let's complicate things earlier in first samuel 15 11, god says i regret that i have made saul king oh come on he just said that god doesn't change or have regret now he's saying he regret what all right does god change his opinions no and i think what verse 11 means is that god looked upon the sin of saul and was grieved He felt sorrow over what Saul had become. God made no mistake, but he did feel sorrow. Other scriptures appear to suggest God changes his mind, and we don't have time to go in to them and to study them, but let's quickly look at Jonah 3. Jonah preached to Nineveh, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. There's an easy message to deliver. In that message of judgment was the unstated assumption, if you don't repent if you don't repent. Jonah 3:10 says God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. Did God change his mind? No, here's why. Judgment depended on impenitence. But what did they do? They humbled themselves and turned to God. God showed mercy. That's gospel. Everyone is condemned in their sin unless they flee to Christ to avoid the impending and coming judgment of God by repentance and faith. This is totally consistent with the unchanging character of God. Robert Raymond writes, God always acts the same way toward moral evil and the same way toward moral good. In his every reaction to men's responses to him, the immutable moral fixity of his character is evident. If men and women alter their relations to him, he will always respond in a manner consistent with his immutably holy character. Much more to say, but we have to move on. Job 23.13 says, But he is unchangeable. And who can turn him back? What he desires, he does. God never deviates from his determined purposes. Then there's Psalm 102, 26 and 27. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away, but you are the same. God endures. God remains. God is always the same. Malachi 3 6 reveals God's immutability. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. The character and will of God never change. Therefore, his promises are fulfilled precisely because he is immutable. Jump to Paul in the New Testament. He wrote to Timothy. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. God remains faithful because he cannot deny the immutability of his being. And Hebrews 6.17 is really clear. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So to prove His purpose is immutable, God made an oath to back it up. Verse 18 calls God's purpose and God's oath two unchangeable things. Hebrews 13.8 reads, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus is immutable. Lastly, James 1.17 says that with God there is no variation or shadow due to change. God's immutability unifies all of his other attributes. He is unchangeable in all of them. His attributes are diverse, but Stephen Charnock, a Puritan pastor from the 17th century, said, but immutability is the center wherein they all unite. God's love never changes. God's holiness never changes. His truth righteousness, wrath, mercy, and beauty, and all His other magnificent attributes never change. God is the same now as He was in the New Testament and as He was in the Old Testament and as He was outside of time. He's the same. God. Therefore, God's view of homosexuality arises from the perfection and unity and immutability of all of his attributes. Are you following me? Blank stares. The scariest thing for preachers. They're glazed over, God. You're going to have to do something. Everyone has something to say about homosexuality. But so very few opinions are shaped by who God is And what God is really like. More often than not, and and if you're just honest, you will totally see this. Just listen to people. I'm not making this up. Listen to people. More often than not, opinions and views are shaped by what people feel. By what people feel and experience. Well, I have a brother. Well, I've got a cousin. Well, I myself have, and I, just, and, and I saw in a movie once, and, and I just feel that God would not be, and I, I, don't, I can't worship a God that would, and just listen. I feel. It's my experience that defines my truth, not the God of the universe who clearly communicated himself through his son and through his word. Long before we appropriately answer the question of homosexuality, we must encounter the living God as he has revealed himself to us in his holy word. With so many loud voices weighing in on homosexuality, how can we hear Jesus? How can we hear him? Listen to Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 as I close. Long ago, at many times, And in many ways, God spoke. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. God is not silent. Jesus Christ is still alive. Jesus Christ is still speaking. And in these last days, He has spoken through His Son. That he sent to be clear. To be a testimony and a witness to the truth of God. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through whom also he created the world. Who made the world? God did through Jesus. He was there. He knows what's going on. His view is without contamination it is right it is good it is sovereign and it is the most important perspective in the universe jesus has something to say about homosexuality i think it may surprise you next sunday to learn jesus has more to say than red letters let's pray father we need your help Because sin did something to us that distorted our perspective on everything. On ourselves, on you, on what we feel, on what we think, on what we choose. We're sinful at the core. And that sin nature in us impacts everything in our lives. God, if there is any voice that we need to clearly hear right now in 2014, in Penron, in Mannheim, in Lancaster County, in the state of Pennsylvania, in the United States, and in the world, it is your voice. It is the voice of your Son. And when we look and we ask the question, where did God speak? How am I going to hear God? You have already answered that because long ago you spoke through your prophets, to the fathers. You manifested yourself to them and they passed us that history and they wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, your word for us. And then you spoke in these latter days by your holy Son, and so if we want to know what to believe on homosexuality, if we're wrestling with it, if we ourselves are, have homosexual tendencies and, and attractions and, and, and we're hearing the, the church say multiple things and we're hearing the culture say pretty much one thing but maybe multiple things and, and we get confused, God, just help us to hear Jesus. And so that's going to take a work of your grace. We pray that Jesus Christ himself by the power of the Holy Spirit, opens our minds to understand the scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.